Hello, curious minds. Welcome to Mentorless Podcast, a show where I have in-depth conversations with visual storytellers about one particular project. Together, we look at the creative and tactical steps they took from having an idea to releasing their finished project into the world. I'm your host, Nathalie Sejean, and I'm particularly excited to share with you this episode. I hope you're ready for an odyssey into space. In this episode, I talked with Stefan van Vuren about his incredible journey making In Saturn's Rings, a project that started as a play 14 years ago and is about to be released on IMAX screens. The story of Stefan and his film could be a film. You're in for a treat. I had a very hard time to stop myself from asking him questions because his journey is both incredible and incredibly inspiring. I cannot wait for you to discover it. And I cannot wait for me to discover your reactions about it. I'll see you on the other side of this audio track. Enjoy. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with us. It's wonderful to be with you, Natalie. So you are the filmmaker and producer behind a documentary named In Saturn's Ring. I, I hope I'm saying it well. And we are Saturday, so I guess it's a great day to talk about this project since it's Saturn's Day. And you have been through a very long process that's taken over a decade and we are going to talk about it right now. So to start with, can you tell us what's In Saturn's Rings? So in Saturn's Rings, I describe it as a grand tour of the universe starring Saturn that is made entirely with uh, real photographs from space. And I hopefully turn it into something more compelling than a slideshow by using something called multiplane photo animation to create the sense of flying through the photographs. Before we enter into this uh, definition of multiplane photo animation, because I'm sure not many people know what it means and can visualize what it means on a screen, I would be very interested in you telling us a little bit about... You started this project in 2004, and until that point, were you already a full-time filmmaker? I know you are from South Africa, but you live in the United States. So can you tell us where you were when you started this project and how you were introducing yourself at parties at that time, I guess? That's a great way to say, how do you introduce yourself at parties? Uh, so the very short little uh, bio is uh, I had... One, my mother was American, my father was South African. I lived in uh, both parts of the world as a kid and uh, wanted to be an astronaut. And that didn't work out, which is its own long story. But um, at 18, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and decided I wanted to become a filmmaker. I, I, I didn't even really understand that there were directors and producers and writers up until that point. And uh, seeing that, I realized I could make films about things that I was interested in. So I started down a filmmaking path when I was 18, and that lasted until I was about in my 20s. And that's the point when I came to the States, went to California, tried to go to film school, went and dropped out of a couple of film schools. But this was the late 80s or early 90s, and filmmaking was very expensive. It was an unusual thing to do. At the time in the United States, there were only 11 undergraduate universities that offered filmmaking. Now there are hundreds. So it was a completely different world. And so in about 1990, I said, no, I just can't. I'd spent a lot of money on a 16 millimeter film that I'd never finished and uh, decided 
I would go into the computer field because I'd always messed with computers and I had, had a kind of computer hobby. So I started doing that as uh, my own little business and that led to a job and I did that for the next decade. But I always, you know, I had this love of filmmaking that I pretended that I didn't have. So I always kept an eye on it. And I became a very one of those very critical people. I would go to the movies and you know, I remember these are true confessions of a blocked artist, but I remember saying critical things about two movies that I adore today, which is The Big Lebowski and Fight Club, which I would consider two of my favorite films. But that, you know, when you're when you're blocked, you you just have that negative energy. But long story short, I kept following the Cassini space program, you know, which was designed in the 90s and then it was launched in 1997. And uh I was kind of keeping an eye on Cassini. I was kind of keeping an eye on digital filmmaking. I was like, oh, they're moving filmmaking onto computers. I'm in the computer field. That's interesting. And so in 1999, after kind of a series of uh, life events, I realized I was making a lot of money in corporate information technology, but I was deeply unhappy. So in 99, I got back into filmmaking part-time, and that's where I was in 2004. I introduced myself as parties as a filmmaker, but I was still doing some part-time information technology work. But 2004, just a lot of things happened. This is a film that found me. It's not a film that I looked for. I'd done the typical kind of, you know, made some shorts, tried to help on some features, you know, tried to write some scripts. That's where I was in 2004. And I was watching the Cassini spacecraft and the Hoyt with the Huygens lander attached to it arrive at Saturn. And I was crushed at the lack of publicity that that event achieved. I had read Carl Sagan's Cosmos as a child. This is when I decided to become an astronaut. And I'd read about the moon Titan that was around Saturn. And it had a, it was larger than our moon. It was larger than Mercury. It had a full atmosphere, much thicker than ours. And I just imagined aliens and alien civilizations. And it was covered in the shroud of clouds that telescopes could not peer through. And we're sending a spacecraft that's going to orbit Saturn and then drop another spacecraft that's going to land on this. I thought we would all be huddled around our televisions like the Apollo moon landing. And uh, that was the moment that kind of everything changed for me as uh, a filmmaker and the whole course of what I thought I was going to do. You know, I had a typical kind of map. I'd make more shorts, you know, make a low budget feature than a larger budget feature. That's the map I had laid out. But when I saw the first photographs come down from Cassini, they were so stunning to me. And I felt no one else was connected to me in this experience. And I wondered, why am I not having a connected experience like we had with the moon landing with other people? And I thought, well, with the astronauts there on the moon, people felt as if some representative, if they if they were there in some way, they had some point of human connection. And I thought, if they'd only put a motion picture camera on the Cassini spacecraft so that we felt ourselves flying in there, maybe people would feel different. And I became obsessed with this thought. And I, I knew nothing about all the things that I just mentioned, multi-plane photo animation. I, I didn't know anything about anything. I was just obsessed with the ideas of somehow sharing these photographs. And uh, that's where the whole thing began.
One of the things that I find fascinating about your story and your project is that there has been so much technological change. And I, I think it's probably one of the main, I don't know, I'm suspecting it might be the main thing about this story is that you have this idea of you feel like there is a lack of media to make the citizens of the world feeling as excited as you about Saturn's pictures. But that was 13 years ago. Once you have this idea, what is your next step? And can you take us through what's your next step into trying to decide what to do and how you decided on doing a multiplane photo animation and and also Another question I have is, is this different of parallax? Because I felt it was quite similar to the parallax technique. Is there a difference between multiplane photo animation and parallax? Sort of, and I can e explain more uh, about that because actually the very first thing that I did when I thought about these photographs is I wrote a one-act play. There was okay. a, <laughs> it just happened there was a playwriting competition And the one consistent thing about this whole story, both the creative and the technical, is that, you know, there's an English saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And that is that is the story of, of the film, both creatively, you know, and how to approach where I am now with what kind of film I've made, but also technically what to do. But I had this emotional impulse at the beginning. And there was, a, you know, I wanted to do something immediately. And there was a one-act playwriting competition. And I wrote a one-act play, which was a dialogue between two people arguing about whether space exploration was important or not. And one character was talking about the photographs. And I, I thought, well, you know, I come from a filmmaker. Maybe I can just put a projector on the stage and I'll pro project some images behind them. And I wrote that play and I had a couple of actors perform it and people seemed to be interested in it, but not sure what to do with it. And then I was like, well, wait, maybe I can turn this into like a, you know, a five minute art film. And so that's what I did. That was the next steps. I, at that time I had a Panasonic mini DV camera and uh, I wrote a script, filmed it, didn't really love the results. I wrote several more versions of that script. It became about nine pages. And I filmed that and it was like, oh, this is getting a little bit better, but I, I, I felt I'd missed something. And then several things happened in kind of short order that completely changed things. The first was I saw, and this kind of addresses your point about parallax and multiplane. I saw a, a very well-done documentary called The Kid Stays in This Picture, which is about Robert Evans or Bob Evans, the famous 60s, 70s uh, film producer in Hollywood. And the filmmakers approached it as a traditional documentary, but you know, Bob Evans says, yes, I'm, I'm happy to actually be interviewed for this uh, piece, but I have one stipulation. I'm old and you may not film me. You may only use my voice. And the filmmakers were <laughs> quite stunned. They're like, how are we going to make a 90-minute documentary with a guy's voice? But And then someone had the idea that they'd seen a Liz Fair music video, and there may have been one other piece where people had taken Adobe After Effects and taken photographs and split them into layers and applied a little bit of a parallax effect to create something that they call 2.5D animation. And this had a connection to uh, Walt Disney's, not really invention, it was invented, but he turned it into something really powerful and useful for filmmakers called the multiplane camera, which was an animation stand camera with the cameras pointing straight down in an animation cell. But rather than a single cell 
Walt Disney put, had multiple cells, sometimes three up to 11 planes of glass. And this was to create a convincing background foreground camera move effect. And when I saw the kids stays in its picture, I got very excited by the potential of 2.5D, which led me to start thinking, it's like, well, maybe I can do something more with these photographs that would be more dynamic. And I was heavily into exploring everything related to multiple planes of images, from parallax to the multiplane camera, to things like theater flats, which led to a very interesting little piece of uh, film history. If you remember Lord of the Rings, they had this force perspective effect, which they attached pieces of the sets to the camera. So as the camera would move, the perspective of the sets would would rotate with the camera move. And this is related all the way back to moving perspective flats in old Western films. But it all falls under the umbrella of necessity is the mother of invention. There, they didn't have CGI effects that were convincing, so they had to come up with something that they could work with. And I just had a like moment of inspiration when I realized that there must be a mathematical relationship between moving planes and creating the illusion of depth. And this could be applied to photographs and all these kind of techniques and ideas could be rolled into one thing. And I could use Adobe After Effects as an extremely versatile multi-plane animation camera and thus keep the photographs pure. Okay, so I have a few follow-up questions based on everything you said. The first one is when you said you filmed you transitioned from the play to a short film, I'm guessing. Was it a fiction? Because basically, the reason why I'm asking that and what's interesting to me is you start as a fiction storyteller. I'm saying that based on your IMDb and, and what you just said before, which is you, you did short films and you were thinking of doing feature films. So initially, you come more from the mindset of let me build a story around something a fiction. But then with Intaturn during at some point it becomes a, a documentary. So was the short film a, a documentary style or was it a fiction? And if it was a fiction, when did you slide toward documentary? That's a great question. Um, the word documentary still seems odd to me. And even though that's where you would find in Saturn's Rings on the shelf or in an Amazon listing, I don't consider myself a documentary filmmaker. And I guess it is a documentary film, but those two uh, short films I made, I would call them truly experimental. At the time, I didn't. But now I realize they were truly experiments where I was trying things. What I did is I took the dialogue from the one-act play, and I had two actors where I filmed them having a dialogue. Now, they're having a dialogue about real events, but I considered it a narrative piece. I was trying to tell a, a story through a dialogue, and I was combining that with some very simple, distill, you know, Ken Burns styles, you know, kind of slow pan and zooms. By the way, Ken Burns is also something that I rolled up into my recipe, just trying to use photographs in an evocative emotional way but in the constraints of a narrative and the journey into a true documentary has been very very gradual at a glacial pace it would be really hard to go back in the 27 or 28 versions of the script that I've written over the years to decide at what point it was uh, still an experimental narrative and at what point it became a documentary it's been extremely gradual 
In Saturn's ring, you still consider it as an extension or a longer form of what was first uh, your short film or is there still people narrating because from the from the trailer it felt like it was more of an experience for the ears and the eyes but i just heard music so i assume there was no narrative story but i might be wrong again really good question so the evolution is that when i there's a very important event that happened when I stumbled across this idea of multiple planes of images and doing something far more visually dynamic, is I was driving in my car thinking about this, and Ferry Corsten did a remix of a William Orbit performance of a, the music uh, Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber, and it was a kind of trance remix of that. And that's, I'd always loved that song. I'd seen it in Platoon and a couple, and Elephant Man. And for some reason, I just had this flash of insight that Adagio for Strings was the perfect mu music for flying around Saturn. And it was just a completely intuitive creative. I didn't have any logical reason for that. It just felt right. And it gave me this vision of a truly flying through space film that was just music and sound. And so I started transforming the script that I'd written that was an experimental narrative, but it had narration and all this other stuff into something that was just more purely visual. And basically from about 2008, 2007, to about two or three years ago, I just was making it more and more visual until the narration was completely dropped by about 2011. And that's the way I intended it to be until a couple of things happened. One is that the technical difficulties in making a film at this resolution, because I did not intend to make a film for IMAX and giant screen theaters. That thought never crossed my mind. But again, back in 2007, I had a chance meeting. I had gone to Las Vegas, a place that I don't really particularly love to go, but there was a conference there and there are gonna be some NASA scientists and I thought, well, this is, I've been trying to get a hold of these people through the internet without success. I'm going to go out there and meet them in person. I went out there. It was a terrible experience. I was completely, this was about 2006. I spent a lot of money trying to find an animation or filming technique. I'd made these two short films that didn't work out. I was flat broke. I was staying in a terrible, depressing hardcore gambling hotel well off the strip. And I didn't have money for cab fares. So I had to walk two miles to this conference every day. Finally met the people and uh, it was a disastrous meeting. I can't on the record say all the details of what those were, why it was so poorly. I found out later it wasn't me that this had happened to other people who had been trying to do other creative projects about Saturn. And I was completely discouraged and thought, well, okay, time to move on and get back to my filmmaking. And I was sitting at a lunch table eating a box sandwich and there was a person sitting across from me and he said, hello, who are you? And I was like, yes, I'm a filmmaker, who are you? And he says, I'm James Hyder, the editor of LF Examiner. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. He says, well, you you're a filmmaker, you should. It's the large format industry trade journal. I was like, large format? He said, IMAX, that's what people call it IMAX, but that's a company. The technical term is large format though people are starting to use the word giant screen now. And he said, so what are you doing? So I told him I'm trying to make this film about Saturn. I told him about multiplaying. And he said, that's an incredible idea. You've got to make this 
as a large format IMAX film. And I told him, you're crazy. I said, I'm struggling technically already. I don't have any money, you know, gave out my sob story. And I thought that would be that. But while I was there in Las Vegas, I hadn't seen a, an IMAX film since I was a kid. There was one nearby. I went and saw one and I knew he was right because my original impulse that I talked about, that I wanted to share these photographs in a way that people would feel they were there. I realized that the size of the screen matters. And that was a deeply profound insight for me. If I want people to feel as if they're truly there, the image has to fill the eyes all the way through your peripheral vision. And then you feel as if you're there. So this was 2006? Late 2006. Since 2006, you decided to go for IMAX format. I didn't decide because I told him it was impossible. But it was one of those ideas that stuck in my brain. I, I knew he was right, but I was thought of a lot of reasons that it wasn't. So I started exploring the idea. And uh, in uh, 2007, I started to to really see if it was possible. And it was one of those things is like, well, let me just say it's possible and try to see if I can make an image that would hold up on the giant screen. And my first attempt uh, in about 2008, I believe, I went to an IMAX conference with some footage and Photochem, which is a big lab in LA, was very kind enough to output two minutes of footage, which is about $2 a frame, wholesale cost for a one light print. And it was horrifying. It was on an eight story screen in uh, New York City. And uh, it was awful. I couldn't believe how terrible it looked because every pixel, you know, as a filmmaker, you learn things that matter in the frame and things that don't matter in the frame and how to kind of, you know, hide things. There was no hiding. It was like the dream where you're naked in front of a, a large amount of people. So <laughs> I realized that, you know, I was going to have to, believe it or not, this is a very short version of the story. I spent a lot of time trying to come up with ways to get high resolution images. And it wasn't until 2010 that I was able to do so. Okay, I need to stop you because already everything you said makes me want to ask 10 more questions. So the first thing I want to say before we I ask you a question is I just want to point out two things that I feel are very important in the story you're sharing. These are things that I've, I've been experiencing myself as I'm trying to make my feature film. And those are... What I'm loving so far is that it's obvious to me that your creative process is fueled by your real life. And by that I mean it's as if you had your uh, chakras open, if you, you want to believe in chakras or whatever is it, like cre creative antennas, let's say. And you're picking up from your what's happening in your daily life, the elements that are going to help you move forward on your story. So in a way... It's like you're picking on this uh, stage contest to move forward and then you find the documentaries giving you hints of where you can go technically or the music in the radio. I'm just saying this is something I've been very fascinated by where, where it feels like it's almost like the universe is sending us elements to help us move forward. And I, I just love that it's, it shows, or I am hearing it that way in your story, but I love that. And the other thing that I also enjoyed so far is, is the fact that it's like your your first idea, because we haven't finished the full circle of where the Inside Turns ring is at right now, but I'm guessing your reintroduced narration. This is where you were coming to, I guess, but... It's like it was your first idea and then you're 
often what you dropped from your first draft comes back later on. At least that's been my experience, where things that I've written in my first draft were dropped for five drafts and came back in the sixth draft. But we'll get into that later. I just wanted to uh, make these two little comments. Right now, I guess, out of the many questions I have for you, the one I want to start with is... So you, you, you go to this meeting, it goes very poorly, you're broke, you, you say, okay, I'm dropping this project, and then you have this conversation with this editor, and what in your head like why did this conversation make you feel like I should continue because what I find interesting is that it was just a conversation but it's not like he got attached to the project he didn't solve your technical problems or it didn't bring you any money what was this switch that make you go from okay let's move on to something else maybe something more exciting or less difficult to I have nothing solved but I'm still going I, I, I completely agree with all your insights and the points that you're making. And and I think one of those points, the, the your first point about a creative project coming out of your your life, your daily life and what's kind of in in the core of your being, and the answer to this question are are kind of one and the same thing, which is you know the truth about filmmaking is filmmaking is hard. A film is hard. It ultimately, whether it's a director or a writer or a producer or an actor, ultimately it's the force of one person's will that brings a, a film to life. I think it shares a lot of emotional similarities to birthing a child or any any kind of profound act of creation is ultimately one person has to truly feel it, be committed to it, and, and see it all the way through. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the in the, the program, which someone gave me a book, which I had on my shelf for years. And then in about 2000, I finally read called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And that whole process speaks to this, this whole point of, I much prefer to think myself as not a creator, but as a channeler, and that the creative energy comes from outside myself. Because if I have to, if I have to create the creative energy all the time, it, I, I don't have the the energy, you know, just as one small human being to bring a film into being. But if I attach myself to something that has much more profound energy, and I think our passions in life, what truly moves us, you know, when you're trying to figure out what film projects to pursue, I have learned the hard way that it's got to be something that I just love and that I'm compelled that's constantly scratching at me all the time because that's what happened with that conversation in Las Vegas is if I were there just with some idea that I thought would make a good film, I tend to think the this would make a good film is almost like the devil on my shoulder. The angel on, on my shoulder is, what film do I really want to see just for me? What will I regret, even if everybody on planet Earth thinks it's a terrible idea? What do I want to see? And I think that's the faith that I proceed on on doing something like deciding I'm going to go forward through this was someone once mentioned a comment to me that says, you know, when you're trying to make creative decisions, realize that we're actually not unique. If there's something that you love and something that moves you deeply, you're probably not the only one who feels that way. And that's what I did. I was like, at my core, I wanted to do something with photographs from Saturn and mu the music adagio by strings. I said, I, I think this is a magical combination that moves me profoundly. 
let me do that. And so that's after I left that conversation and saw the IMAX film and thought about it and tried to not think about it and tried to do other things. I, you know, it's not like I've been doing this 24 seven. I've tried to get involved in other projects that would take me away. That would be more practical, more reasonable, you know, create financial returns. And uh, those have either been dead ends or been failures. And, you know, after a few months, I'm back on this project. This has been proven true. And the very simple way of illustrating this is in 2010, I had one minute of footage of giant screen resolution fly through of Saturn flying by the rings. I put Adagio for Strings music on it, put it up on Vimeo, and it sat there for 10 months, and it only had 200 views. And in March 2011, that was my my birthday's March 4th, and that birthday weekend, I remember thinking, this is done. I have followed my passion. There's only 200 views, which is mostly my family and friends and me watching it about 50 times. (laughs) I said, this is just not meant to be. Let me move on. And a a couple of weeks before that, I'd sent an email to io9.com which was a website I was actually unfamiliar with and said, you're using one of my images from the website in a blog post that you're doing. And that weekend, I got a reply from them that said, oh, we don't think we are. And I said, well, here, you can see this image on my website. And they went to the website and they saw the image. And I got a reply uh, Sunday. My birthday was on a Saturday. And on the Sunday following, they said, oh, we just saw your Saturn flip. We love it. Would you like to do a story on it? I'm getting just a little emotional here. And the next day, my email box had exploded. It had gone viral off io9. And uh, then a couple of days later, NASA picked up the clip as their astronomy picture of the day. And it just went all over the internet. And it ended up airing on a couple of, uh, you know, science channel shows around the world and hit about 1 million plays in two, three days. Volunteers poured into the project, donations started coming in, and that changed my life. Wow, okay, you have a great story. (laughs) I love it. Uh, I love it, and I still need to go backwards. There is one thing that intrigues me a lot, and it's, you said that until 2010, you didn't have pictures that had a good enough resolution for IMAX. First of all, I'm curious to understand how did you get those pictures from 2004 until 2010? What were the sources? Because to me, when you say NASA picked my pictures as peak of the day, I was like, oh, I thought you were taking your pictures from NASA. And also, like when you, when you contact this website and you say, this is one of my pictures, what makes it your own? You understand what I'm like? I'm just curious about the source of your pictures. And what was the media you were using from 2004 until 2010, and what changed in 2010? Again, that's a that's a that's a really great question. That's kind of at the heart of the what I've spent so much of the the time doing. So when I first decided I wanted to do, you know, I had this insight into yes, I'm going to develop multiplane photo animation. I was not a multiplane photo animator, if there is even such a word. And so I had to do a lot of learning and had some very fumbling attempts, but very quickly I learned a couple of things. And I knew nothing about photographs from space. And I'd written a script realizing that even back, whether I was doing an experimental narrative or a pure documentary, that I couldn't do 
if I was going to do an IMAX film, one of the these movies that play in these institutions, they are 40 minutes long. They're not 41. They're not, you know, 28. They're 38 to 40 minutes. And if you want them to be seen on those screens, you need to adhere to that. And I was like, I don't think I can do so. I There's all these other photographs from space. I'll make a film that puts Saturn in context. That's a that's a theme that I love is that context is very important. I'd wanted to see Saturn in the context of the universe. So I was looking at all these photographs and I quickly found out if you want to create any kind of animation, we've all done this at a very simple level. We take a picture, it looks very nice. We put it into an editing program of some kind. We start to zoom in very quickly. It looks pixelated. It's like, well, that's no good. And I quickly discovered that. And the this editor, James Hyder, had given me some phone numbers of some people in the technical side of the industry. And I had conversations with them. And I found out that time, IMAX was 100% film-based. There was no digital project, projection of any time. And the film recorder used a resolution of 5,600 pixels by 4,200 pixels, which is far beyond HD. And when you actually do the math, because it's a 4-3 aspect ratio, these giant screens, even the 8K cameras that are available today still are a little short on the vertical resolution. So it was a daunting resolution. And it, it was one of those dead ends. I thought, well, this can't be done. That's where I was when James Hyder said to me, because I was struggling to make a simple photo animation at an HD resolution using the pictures I found on the NASA website. So you were using the pictures made available by NASA? Yes. This was your only source of input or you had other, I don't know if anyone but NASA had pictures of Saturn at that time? No, but it, it turned out that that's the tip of an iceberg. If you go to NASA's website and say, show me pictures of Saturn, what I did not know, and I finally stumbled around this very amazing website called Unmanned Spaceflight Forum. And the Unmanned Spaceflight Forum was a group of people around the globe that are called amateur image processors. And what it turns out, the Cassini spacecraft, it has two cameras on it. And this is very typical of all the other space missions. Almost all of those cameras are black and white cameras. And in fact, the Cassini cameras are one megapixel. There's a wide angle and a narrow angle camera, and they have a one megapixel CCD. It's basically digital camera technology from the 1990s. And to take a color picture, they take three exposures and there's an actual filter wheel that rolls around a red, a green, and a blue. And then someone has to combine that into a color picture. Those color pictures that were one megapixel were the, the pictures that I saw. But then as I started digging around, I found some higher resolutions. And, you know, there was just a handful on NASA's website. And that's where I found unmanned spaceflight. The spacecraft, as it's going around Saturn, will take a panoramic, just like, you know, you do a panorama on your phone where you just move it and you... The camera takes multiple pictures and stitches them together. Well, the spacecraft does the same process, except that stitching has to be done manually. There's no software that can do it because everything's moving. The spacecraft is going at, you know, 100,000 miles an hour type thing. So someone has to manually stitch those together. And in unmanned spaceflight forum, there are far more pictures than NASA can process on its own. And they have made the raw image feed, and that was the magic term, raw spacecraft images. There is a treasure of these, but they are not easy to deal with, and they're far more than I as an individual. So I started talking to individuals there on unmanned spaceflight and getting to know them. 
And this was an initial core. That's when the project was no longer an I project and became a we project. And these people were as obsessed, if not more, than I was with the beauty of space images and eager to share. So they started out by donating their life's work of image processing to me. And then several of them agreed to start helping me create specific images. And uh, those people are still with me to this day to show their level of commitment. And so I and they have been stitching very high resolution images together from multiple small images. We have one set of images that we have stitched together that shatters the Wikipedia entry for the largest image stitches that have ever been done. So the, the one minute uh, video that you put on your uh, Vimeo account and that was uh, that was made out of these images you made with these people? Yes, so I, I worked on the ring the rings composite image because we needed a very high le resolution plane of the rings and I spent 10 hours a day, uh, six days a week for three months making um, the ring composite and then the body of the planets and the body of those moons were done by other image processors. As each part of that photograph we needed a high resolution version. And all these three months of work from you full time plus all these other people spread uh, all over the world I'm guessing resulted in one minute. Yeah there's probably about I'm not counting the scientists and engineers who got the uh, the spacecraft there, but just the image processing. There's, it would probably one person um, working for about two years for that one minute. So I want to go back to this, and there is a point I, I want to make, but I do have one question that I haven't asked yet that I feel is very important. It's always important when it comes to filmmaking. You said that you uh, were working in computer field, let's say, up until 2004, and then there was a moment where you kind of did half of this, half of filmmaking. And after that, were you full-time filmmaker? I don't know. How were you... How are you making a living during from 2004 2000, until 2011? Let's say that we, we, we stop at 2011 for now. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it is always a, an important question. So I stopped my part-time computer work in 2005 and started doing uh, video production, very typical, you know, commercials, industrials, music videos. So I would do those enough so I was not trying to be um, financially su successful. I was just trying to survive. And my wife, you know, one of the, it can't be stated because my wife is a, not a spouse. She's also a creative partner, not in film, but she's a visual artist. And uh, she was a part-time graphic designer. And we both did enough part-time work you know, her in graphic design and me in video production to, you know, just survive month to month. But it was difficult and uh, we had a really rough time until the clip went viral and we started to get some donations in for the film. Because you were you were financing everything, right? I'm guessing yes. there was a lot of... Uh, I'm not even talking about the time you were putting in for free, but I'm guessing from what you're saying that there was a lot of technology even for that time and, and a lot of expense, maybe in hard drives and I don't know, yes. processors. Yeah, in my, I had about, from about 2004 with the two short films that didn't work and there were two different cameras and two different sets of anamorphic lenses because mini DV was um, very poor resolution wise. 
And then when I was trying to develop the multiplane techniques, I bought a lot of software that didn't work. So the bottom line is I had a, I'd spent about $60,000 of my own money from 2004 to 2011. That's not a little amount of money, actually. That's 10, 10K a year almost. Yes. And for us, it was, it was basically I'd spent everything I had and could, could earn but still have time to try to do this. So that's what I'm saying. Before the clip went viral, I really, truly felt this is game over. But it's also important that I actually ran out of money about 2009. But a couple of uh, people from the Unmanned Space Flight Forum um, made donations to the film. In uh, 2007 or eight, I set up a fiscal sponsorship with Fractured Atlas. And speaking of money, in 2007, someone had gotten wind of my projects from a little video I had on YouTube that went slight, a very small viral clip. And by that, I mean it had, you know, a couple hundred thousand views. Which, which is pretty good. Which is like, it is pretty good. <laughs> but um, it was early in the days of YouTube, so it was a very narrow audience. But I had a very questionable offer from a company that I think wanted to acquire the multiplane technology. And uh, they offered me a they offered me $500,000. Now, I don't think I would have ever seen a penny of it. They were gonna spend it on an office and this, and then there'd be some salary. And I, I think it was it was very questionable and I said no. So I'm not sure if it was even even real. But you know, basically from about 2008, 2009, I, I, that 60,000 was spent. But these, there were a couple of supporters via fiscal sponsorship, this was before crowdfunding, that put enough money in so I could keep the computers up, keep backing things up until, 2000, until the clip went viral in, in uh, 2011. So that was an, a very important part of keeping the heartbeat going during those difficult years when I had nothing to show and uh, was just trying to make it work. And, and, and the craziest part to me is that, I mean, right now we know it's a 40-minute <laughs> documentary or, or, you know, just let's call it a film. But back then it was just to try to make a one-minute... I mean, I'm guessing you were just trying to make something not knowing where it was heading. Yeah, it was, it was, it was truly an act of... I don't know. Uh, you know, at the time I kind of joked and said, I just must be crazy. I mean, this, this makes no sense. There's no, there's certainly no business case for it. The interesting thing is I had people that were more, you know, looking at films from the business proposition. And at uh, one point in about 2009 and 10, I was briefly part of a, a company that was going to make giant screen films and they wanted to do a three picture deal and find investors. And I was one of the three pictures. Fortunately, I got out of that situation, which ended very poorly because they were choosing projects for what's a good film for the market. And ironically, the film the film that they chose, um, they got feedback from the theaters that it was not a good film for the market. Whereas I get feedback that my film is actually because the subject matter is space, which is a very good subject matter for, you know, giant screen theaters. So again, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. I was just driven by this idea of sharing images on the giant screen, real images from space. And as, as like, there's got to be a way for this to happen. So I have a point I want to make, because right now, to me, we kind of covered the pre-viral video, and, and then I'm, uh, I understand there is an after. And what's, what I also found interesting is that 
In 2011, let's say uh, 1st of March, you had 200 views on your uh, one-minute video, even though you have a bunch of people who are passionate on the forum, some of them being, uh, you know, involved in it, and even though you had already a video that got a good number of views, certainly more than 200 views on YouTube. This is also something that I find fascinating in the creative process. And that's a point uh, another guest I had on the podcast made, which is uh, you're basically alone in this type of uh, project, even though people love you. And some people will always be in the 200 people who watch whatever you're doing, good or bad. You can never assume that it's going to work out. And in your case, you had some, I mean, you know, based on everything you said, I understand how heartbreaking it must have been to have only 200 views and I find it so surprising actually that it didn't reach you know more people and, and I'm wondering when you put it on your Vimeo account the first time did you reach out to some websites did you do any attempt to have it be seen or did you just put it as you know thinking it would find its audience <sighs> You know, I don't I don't remember all the things I specifically did. I went back. I did a 10 part series on my blog post where I tried to write down everything I could remember about the process of making the film, because that was a question I had about myself, too. It's like, why didn't I put this everywhere? And I did find that I had sent out the clip, but I probably sent it to the wrong places. I was trying to send it to astronomy and space focused groups. And this also, you have to think about the internet in 2010. Social media was not present. So mechanisms for people to share things was very different. And around 2010, I strongly believe that this film kind of could only have come into being when it did. Because 2011 was just kind of the beginning of we share stuff and we connect it to people. That first clip that went viral, YouTube didn't have, you, I don't know if you remember YouTube in 2007 or 2008, but it was a wild west and there was mostly, you know, little kids on it. There were hardly any adults on it. And, you know, I didn't have a website. I didn't have social media. I didn't have Twitter. I didn't have the things to capture people. And so that was just a missed opportunity on my part. It never occurred to me that anybody was going to pay attention to what I was doing then. And when I had the clip and put it on Vimeo, I think that most people simply didn't click to go visit when I asked. It may have been the way that I couched it or mentioned it, but you know, when I went back and look at the emails, I, I think my emails that I sent out to these space groups were a little too long-winded because I, as a filmmaker, was so broke and looking for funding. I, I was looking for people to help support the effort financially. And I think that that sent the, I sent my emails straight into the, uh, um, you know, and I was looking for grants. I was, I, was, I was very much trying to find some source of funding to take it to the next step. And... Also at that time, I had kind of lost my faith a little bit in the power of the word that didn't exist at the time, crowdsourcing. I was trying to find a company or a partner. So that's who I was sending out emails to, you know, production companies, granting organizations. I was in this three-picture deal trying to get them to fund it. I was barking up the wrong trees, the simple answer. 
it's super interesting because your project is following the evolution of technology and social media and the way we, we exchange. And, and, and it's, um, I mean, it's interesting. Now we are entering the part where you had the viral video and I, I, I don't want to go too fast in, in the future. I want to follow a little bit more the, the evolution of, of your project. So one day, everything changes. People start reaching out to help out on the project. You start... I'm kind of interested, though, at the moment you realize people are watching your video, how did you, like you just said you missed an opportunity before, how did you transform this one into a real opportunity? Did you put up a website during the night? Did you create a PayPal button for donate? How did you make sure this time that this opportunity uh, was going to become something more than just people watching your video? Well, I realized I, I misspoke earlier. I, what I meant to say is I didn't have a website that was set up to capture people well. I'd had a website for the project kind of from the get-go but it'd been a very basic site. And then I had, back in the 2007, one of the person who saw the YouTube video was this website designer in a Mendoza, Argentina, of all places. And uh, he offered to do me a website for $2,500 at the time. I said, I don't have $2,500. So he ended up being inspired by my passion of me trying to figure out multiplane, that he made this beautiful website for me that was very beautiful to look at but it had no easy way to for people to sign up for newsletters or follow along the story. It had no blog, that type function. And that's what I had. But before the clip went viral, I had done a couple things. One is I'd moved the site over into a WordPress that you could sign up for a newsletter. You could make a donation to Fractured Atlas at the time. And those were in place when the clip went viral. Nobody was using them at the time other than a handful of people. I think I had, you know, a hundred or so people signed up for newsletter at that point um, before the clip went viral. So when it happened, that's what happened. All of a sudden, my email inbox was full of people are liking your video on Vimeo. You have a donation from there's a news media person that wants to interview you. It was truly an overnight on off. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to capture enough of that I mean, that always dies down and there's this crash when your viral experience is over. And what your other person that you talked about said is that people don't necessarily come back, but there was, there was a core because it was, there were so many, you know, math is important with viral things because it was a million views. There were basically about 25 volunteers and about a hundred donors who donated on an ongoing basis. Some of those were just five or ten dollars a month, but it added up to three or four hundred dollars a month that I had steady donations and a couple of people that would put, you know, two or three thousand dollars in a year every year from then on. So that that made a, that made all the difference in the world, even though it subsided down to two hundred people. These were now two hundred people that were very different. They were not family and friends at all. They were all new people who felt ownership of the project themselves. And they've stayed with all the way through. To this day. To this day. Wow, that's amazing. And it's actually grown. Because um, I did. I had a very successful Kickstarter that I did in 2014. I'm jumping ahead. But that expanded that group to where we are today. So between 2011, so let's say 2011 is a big game changer. And at that point, I'm guessing there's no more doubt in your head that you're just going to continue this project. And, and even probably there is a moment where you, where you decide to take it even further and make it a full feature. And um, 
from that point on, can you tell us a little bit what changed for you? How did you, because all of a sudden you have a, a team of people who are all over the world once again and coming specifically to help you on this project. I'm guessing that in terms of time management for you and just scale management, it's a whole game change. And also, even though you receive donations, I'm guessing it, the costs are going up and that's probably why you decided to do a crowdfunding. Uh, what happened between 2011 and 2014 and is it during those years that you decided to make it a full feature that could be screened on an IMAX? Yeah, so when I got the one-minute clip, I mean, I'd, all, I'd, I'd never let go of the idea of doing a 40-minute IMAX. I just didn't really know if it was possible. But when the one-minute clip was done, I knew it was technically feasible. But something else, here's the interesting thing about how things can change. So in the fall of 2010, I took a digital version of that clip to the IMAX conference and showed it to IMAX theaters. Now it was on a small multiplex screen. It wasn't on an IMAX giant size screen. And uh, I showed it and I got a very underwhelming response from those theaters. And I was like, I, you know, I can do this full length and there was no offers of money or help or yeah, we're gonna help make this film or, you know, there were, there were IMAX distributors there and uh, nothing happened. The clip goes viral in 2013. From that, I did a, a, a crowdfunding campaign to put a two-minute version of that clip on IMAX film. So in the fall of 2011, I took that to the IMAX conference. It was like I was showing them new footage, and it was the same clip, lots of interest. I signed a distribution agreement in the spring of 2012 with one of the small up-and-coming distributors in the giant screen market. And after the viral clip, that was the next significant thing because, you know, basically from the day the clip went viral, I was actively working with this new group of people on, okay, these are the other sections of the film, let's start getting the images. I already had some of that image processing started for other sections of the film. And we all started working on that. And we were in that group of volunteers. There was a lead volunteer at the time who felt that we could have everything done by the beginning of 2014, which I added about another nine months to that. And I told the distributor in 2012, we'll have the film done in the fall of 2014. And yes, the cost went up. So I was getting donations. I was seeking donations. I, But I also realized I was going to need some additional funding because the cost of the film, I felt I could crowdfund, don't get donations for and put a little bit of my own money in my pocket for the actual production of the film using volunteers. And that has proven to be true all the way to the end. However, I had found out that the costs in giant screen, well, first of all, a film out was going to cost $250,000 for one print. So $250,000 was the cost for you to transfer it from digital to film. Yep, that's the for that's, it to be screened. Yeah, that's that's for the inner positive and one print and then about 25 to 50,000 for additional prints. And then worse worse than that, digital projection had gotten started. IMAX's digital system came out in 2009 and 2010 and IMAX's DCPs, you know, I I actually make DCPs for other filmmakers. That's that's been my part-time job in recent years, I can't make a, IMAX has a proprietary DCP format and they were going to want about 25 to 50,000 per DCP. It's now about 50,000 and you need three of them. 
And I suddenly realized I was going to need $500,000 just to show in these certain markets, not to have my film. I could make a film in 4K DCI that would play in any 4K theater, giant screen or not, anywhere in the world. But in IMAX branded theaters, and there's a couple of other formats in the giant screen, I was going to need a large amount of money. So I talked to my fiscal sponsors, like, is there any way I can sort out the financial logistics of all this? And they said, you keep the production of the film as a nonprofit, but you can form a for-profit LLC that handles the distribution. And you can find some investors to cover just some of the distribution costs. And that's what I ended up doing. That's the way the film has gotten to the end to be distributable. And of course, we're still... The universal rule of filmmaking, as I'm sure you know well, you're always looking for money and you never have enough. And we're looking for a corporate sponsor now. Okay, and I'm guessing you have the link on your website. Yes. And the website is? It's just insaturnsrings.com. That's perfect. I will have all the information on, on my website when the episode comes out. A couple of follow-up questions on this part. The first one is, is it because the difference visually was amazing or was it a psychological element? Did it make you look more professional or why, why is the difference in... Uh, or was it just because you came also with the story of it being viral? What did what makes the difference? You know, I'm not sure I, I know the, the, the truth about this because it's hard to understand the minds of people. But looking back on that, I think there were several things that happened. First of all, the audience that was viewing it were people that ran giant screen films. And this was one of the first time they had seen material for the giant screen presented on a small digital screen. So I think they were in a negative frame of mind to begin with. And secondly, I do think when something goes viral, people view it differently. There's, there's no question about that. Because now IMAX is increasingly digital and they have new giant screen, four, three aspect laser projection um, systems. And I feel it has the same kind of emotional impact because I do think the, the most significant factor was the second time I showed it, the image was, you know, 10, 20 times the size. And for certain types of imagery, size matters. And the giant screen for images of, that you want to feel immersed in, that you want to feel are larger than life, um, and space images are certainly that way, it's a perfect marriage. So I think that ultimately, that's what I believe. And I base this on having friends of mine. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. You know, my, my wife, Marie, has, has, you know, wonderfully followed me along on this, this, this crazy journey. She's been a very supportive, you know, both a, a partner, but also a, a fellow artist understanding, you know, why I'm doing this. But at the same time, you, you never are really sure when people are going down something that seems like a kind of crazy road. She had seen my my early footage over and over and over again, even before I had the viral clip. But we had uh, that that two minute clip. We we traveled to an IMAX theater and showed it to some friends. And it was just two minutes. And after it after it played, she turned to me and she had tears in her eyes and she says, "I understand now why you're doing this." Hmm. So that that's that experience. It's hard to explain to someone why it's so different why it's such a different experience to see it at that sense of size, but it really is. I cannot make that point too many times because I forget it. 
I look at my footage on my computer and I have a projector and a nice TV here to look at it, but I forget what that's going to be like in a theater for people seeing it the first time. You know, I mean, I watched Gravity on the IMAX. It was one of the only times that uh, I actually, I did not even watch it on IMAX. I just watched it on a big screen with uh, 3D. And already just this little switch in experience was very profound for me because it was space. I mean, I, 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 I'm not a believer in everything needs to be high, you know, 8K, 4K, blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to space or, you know, I'm watching right now Planet Blue, and just what the technology is able to capture right now, and I'm guessing what it will be able to capture in a few years. When it comes to nature and the universe, I really feel that it does make sense to want to watch it with, uh, you know, a large point of view. And I understand what you mean. It makes sense that seeing Saturn on a big screen would be much better than on your phone. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. There's, I, I very much believe just like paintings. There are some paintings, you know, people are always surprised that Mona Lisa is small. You know, the canvas size, sometimes you want that intimacy. You know, it's hard to, to have that intimacy with the, the Mona Lisa, but that's what the artist intended. And whereas I, I saw Dolly's Last Supper, which is a massive canvas with larger than life people. And, and those experiences are both equally profound, but very different. And, and, um, I think that's also interesting in terms of, and, and actually that ties to a question I have. Format is also influenced about narrative, or narrative is influenced about format, depending on how you think about it. And, and based on what you were saying, also I think that's the problem with VR today, which is it's not enough to have the ability to shoot something in VR. You also need to have a story that works with this medium. So... My question is in terms of your script, your narrative. We never really finished uh, this section. How did you develop from this one minute? How did you develop a story or a journey? Was it based on the music or based on the material you were finding? How did you work out? How did you work out this experience to make it something that has a, I'm guessing, a beginning, a middle and an end? That was a very challenging process. And it was one of those things that I was struggling with greatly during the whole whole journey and and will struggle to until the final little tweak is made in the film but if maybe about 2012 or 2013 i had a very profound insight i heard some filmmaker talking about a found footage documentary and i realized actually that's the closest genre to what i have is a found footage documentary because the process that i use to do these multi-planes at its very core in order to do a multi-plane shot i need a background a middle ground and a foreground i can't write a script first and then go find the images to make it happen i have to go look and see what space images are available um, whether they're saturn images or images of galaxies see what those images are, and then decide what shot I can do, which then determines what narrative I can string together. And so it's it's a found footage film that I have to edit before I make it. So that's awkward. <laughs> There's no other word for it. It's not elegant. I, I have elegant space stories that I could write, but I would not have the footage to, to show anything with. So I've had to do this, it's as difficult as the technical, to try to bend the images that I do have 
and bend a narrative that I'm going to tie everything together. And my creative choice was the motif or the method or the metaphor that I was going to use for my storytelling was when you go to a place in nature that's very beautiful, a national park or some spot on earth, you have a guided experience. It's your experience, but it's guided. You're just not wandering aimlessly. There'll be some signposts. And that was my choice initially, is I'm going to do a self-guided tour of, like, say, the, the Grand Canyon or uh, some dramatic natural beauty place where you have a sign that lets you know what you're looking at and then tells you where to go to next. And that's what I was doing until about two or three years ago, when I realized with these multiplanes as the first ones were starting to render that I was not going to have the control over the shots that I wanted to, to make that work. And I heard, I was listening to some interviews with the Stanley Kubrick and people talking about Stanley Kubrick. And he was talking about his use of narration because he's, you know, he's talked about as a very visual filmmaker, sometimes doesn't use much dialogue, but he loves narration and he talked about it being he said I'd never want to make a film where I don't have narration as a way to fix a storytelling issue and that's stuck in my brain and that's where that's why I added sparse narration in at the end was to deal with this issue of I, I need that in my tool bag and it works better than title cards which I love title cards because it was easy to put in many different languages but at the same time the film just begot this awkward tension between the the found space images and trying to tie it together with the narrative. Narration has just brought those worlds all together. And it's very sparse. It's only about a 900 words of narration in 40 minutes. And that feels right for the format because when the screen is big and you're there, it's just like if you were in a national park. If you have a guide who's talking to you, you just want them to talk briefly and then let you experience it you know, be there just as needed, but nothing more. I see that you also used the music from Samuel Barber that first inspired you to, to transform this journey into what it has become. And you, you recorded music with the orchestra. And so basically, 2012, you said to the distributor, you could be done in 2000, by the end of 2014. And the film is coming out in May 2018. So I'm guessing things didn't go as planned completely. Yeah, so the last the last big problem, I wanted to to have Saturn exist in a universe rather than a film that I felt I couldn't stretch out the Saturn imagery, again, this found footage thing. I didn't have enough images to make a 40-minute Saturn film. It just was not going to happen. I could make about a 15-minute Saturn film, but that was it. So how I'm going to bookend and wrap this all together, a big part of that was... Uh, coming through space and finding Earth and the solar system in our galaxy and Saturn. And the imagery that we decided to do with this was very ambitious because a dream, a, a, another part of my dream of, of space was, you know, every space, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars and all these films that so many of us have loved um, over the years or 2001 A Space Odyssey or I'm also a Tarkovsky fan. All of these films, I wanted that moment of flying through space and flying through galaxies. And that is extremely difficult to contemplate if you're going to say we're going to use real photographs. So a big part of our work 
that we were going to do in 2013 and 2014 was gathering millions of individual photographs of galaxies for that sequence. And the volunteer leading that effort thought it would take about three to six months. I doubled that to 12 months. That volunteer had some challenges in their lives and had to fall away from the project. And when I looked at, at, at where we were with that, I realized that that was completely impractical and it was going to take probably three years. So I had a choice. I had announced to the world, the distributors, all the, the donors that were supporting the production, the backers that were working on the distribution end. I had this group of people and I could tell them, okay, we'll make a 15-minute Saturn film that can be released in 2014, or this is going to take a lot longer. You know, my vote is take a lot longer, but I can't do it on my own at this point, certainly. And without exception, that group of people said, let's do it. But one of the Kickstarter backers was this guy named Bill Eberly, who is a young computer programmer and space nut in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. He came on board and took over this lead role. And uh, it did take us three years, but we pulled it all off. That's, that's what we did is we just buckled down and the project kind of disappeared. Like, for example, I spent nine months of that period doing nothing. I went through all 5.5 million galaxy photographs that we captured. I went through all of those to pull out stars and jet trails and, and things that, you know, we didn't know until we got into it that were going to cause problems. So we just we just buried ourselves in that in that task, and uh, people kept the faith. The audience kept the faith. The distributor, everyone. Uh, there were some times where people were like, "I'm not sure if we're keeping the faith or not." You know what the hell is going on there? It wasn't easy, but um, we it's it's done. I'm I'm a little bit curious about the deal with the distributor. I don't know if you you can talk about it because basically there's you. There's dozens and dozens of people who've worked for free, I'm guessing. Yes. That's why they're called volunteers. And then you have a distributor that is going to deal with having the film, the copies maybe, and then having deals to have it screen everywhere in the world, or at least maybe in North America to start. And how, how does it work for you? Like, how is this something that has helped you develop maybe have you started working on a new project is it something that financially you can recoup or you and all the volunteers can have money if it's working i don't know that's too many questions in one question but answer what you can and want okay uh well the production of the film has remained a non-profit all-volunteer undertaking and that's through a fiscal sponsor which is a in the United States, a fiscal sponsor, people can donate and get a tax deduction for those donations. And that's that's the way the project started. But I'm not a nonprofit myself. That's the fiscal sponsor term. Um, those donations come to me and they're, they're income and technically taxable. But it's a very good arrangement because I don't have to have, I don't have to create a nonprofit and have a board of directors and all the baggage that comes along with it. So a lot of arts organizations in the United States use that financial structure and there are other filmmakers doing that structure. And typically those are for films that go out and nobody makes any money and that's the end of the day. When I picked up the distributor, that's when I went to my fiscal sponsor and said, well, how do I handle this? And so that's where I created a 
uh, you know, an LLC for the distribution and the distributors involved with that LLC. That LLC licenses the film from me. And that LLC then distributes the film as a for-profit thing into the world. Now, there is a little bit of money that could come back to me potentially, but it's so little that um, it's not something that I'm planning on, even if the film does, you know, plays in a number of theaters and there's, there's a far more potential for income in the giant screen industry than there is an independent film. But, you know, because they, they, a film could have 50,000 people see it at one theater over a six, six month period and they're paying $15 a ticket. So you don't need to be a math whiz to realize that's a large chunk of change. However, the theater is only paying about $1 per person off that ticket. And then the distributor and the people that um, are helping fund the distribution, they get you know all of that. If there's a little trickle left over for me, then yes, I can share it with the volunteers, but I can't share it with volunteers that were donors because by IRS law, if you donate to a project, you cannot earn a donation. But I do have some people that have donated just to me personally via P PayPal, so they don't follow in. So there's a lot of accounting. I'll throw in one little aside, is I think every filmmaker should have a really good accountant. <laughs> That's a very good, a good lawyer and a good accountant. And the, if you have to choose between accountant and a lawyer, choose an accountant. Ah, uh, really? Yes, because there's nothing you can learn. Here's the thing that I've learned from dealing with a lot of contracts and, and very complicated contracts is you can, you can sit down and study a legal contract and learn to understand. Yes, you lack the experience, but you can talk to other people. You can talk to lawyers. That's something I can wrap my head around my contracts that I've signed. Accounting and all the complications of tax laws, there is no way I can ever wrap my head around those things. I have two questions that I always ask to finish. And one of them is, if you were to start in Saturn's Rings today, which lessons you know now would you take with you? So I'm guessing one of them is take an accountant. Yes. <laughs> But if you have any other, um, do you have any other thing that comes to mind? Uh, well, I'm, I, I'll pass on something that was passed on to me by a, another filmmaker. Even when you have an all-consuming passion that you're driving through, let it only be 95% consuming. Have other creative things that you're starting to nurture because you. this was part of the question that you asked. I have kept enough other little things going on the side in, in downtime and frame time. That's, you know, I'll work on a, on a script or another idea of things I want to do next because, you know, when this, when the film comes out in May, well, first of all, like all things, I have to deliver a native full dome format, which is going to take me another six months. So it's really not until about 2019 that I start to get to be really moving on to the next projects. And In Saturn's Rings has the potential to stay in distribution evergreen. It could play in theaters, you know, because of the type of theaters it's playing to. So yeah, I could always have distribution tasks. But I think you want to avoid, I see this people who are one and done. There was a study done in Australia of filmmakers that go into film festivals that about 60% of people are one and done. And I think there's probably multiple reasons why that's true. But one of them is, you know, I poured 13 um, years of my life into this film. Someone's going to watch it in 40 minutes and my conversation with them is going to be, 
Oh, yeah, I liked your film. What else do you have? So I, I think it's very important, but I think emotionally and spiritually, your other creative activities inform your main task. And also they give you energy and perspective on what you're doing. So I, I think it's important to always kind of have a little too many irons in the fire all the time, even if you have one thing that technically is consuming everything that you do, because it also prevents that kind of crash when you're sitting there and go, well, what do I do now? I love it. This is so important and I found it to be uh, extremely true. And, and you can see this type of stories over and over again. And what you say about just having a balance in your creative and in your personal life. You've proved this point at the very beginning of your story. You need to, I firmly believe, you need to have something else than filmmaking in your life to make interesting films. If you want to write books, you need to do something else than just reading books. You need to read books, but you also need to live a life, an interesting life. Otherwise, you're going to feel it through the output. So, This is the last question. It's perfect because you, you always give me great bridges and transitions. And my question is, what's next for you? Uh, well, I, I have a lot of ideas I, and I have some scripts. I have a script that's probably in that you were talking about, comes back in draft six. I have probably draft five of a, a tragic fable story about the, the loss of the creative spirit based on my life in, in corporate America, but it's set in a uh, futuristic Victorian, which someone pointed out to me is called steampunk. I'm still a, you know, a little kid. And uh, if I ever have it, had a success, my, my big budget project fantasy would probably be, I would love to do a reboot since Hollywood loves to do reboots. I would love to reboot 2010, the sequel to 2001. <laughs> but reboot it actually retro reboot it as if it were made in kubrick's 2001 world shoot it on film do it with models you know make something that felt like a true companion piece but in a more real practical sense one of the things i've done for most of the years we have the 48 hour film festival which they now do all over the world i've done 12 of those Those have been creative gym for me. It's the complete opposite of what I'm doing. And uh, three of those I want to make as proper short films. Uh, the ideas just came together. Of course, in 48 hours, you can't do what you want to do technically. But I've written scripts. I've got finished scripts for three of those. And those are the very first things I'm going to do while I'm pursuing these others. Non-48 narrative filmmaking is I'm going to make those uh, shorts um, as the very first thing I do. Well, this is amazing. It's been an amazing conversation for me. I've been very inspired by your journey. I mean, I know it's just a percent and it's, it's made out of shortcuts, but uh, I think it gives a great overview of what it takes and how the creative journey can be full of obstacles that we know, but also surprises. I don't think you imagine you would end up uh, having your film on an IMAX screen, and that's, that's what I love. And I want to thank you for your generosity, your transparency, and your time. I will put on the site all the information related to the film on how people can find you, follow you if they want to ask more questions. And I look forward to seeing what's going to be the next short or feature that you're going to come out with. Thank you very much, Stefan. Well, thank you very much too. I, I really, I want to thank you for what you do and, and your newsletter has, has, has been a part of my journey too because it's one of those things I do as a little 
nurture creative stimulation for myself. So it's important to know that you, what you do for the creative community that you've uh, built is, uh, has real tangible, practical results in the creative output of other artists. That, that's amazing. Thank you so much for saying that. This episode was produced and edited by me, Nathalie Sejean. The music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. You can discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash soulofbear. You can find all the show notes along with all the previous episodes on mentorless.com slash podcast. It is also the place where you can go to submit your story. If you completed a creative project that taught you unique lessons that you'd like to share, go to mentorless.com slash podcast, click on the form at the bottom of the page and submit your story. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or any app you're using to listen to your podcast to rate the show and leave a comment. This is the best way to help the show because the more positive reviews it gets, the higher its chances to be discovered by other curious minds. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. I'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. <laughs>